Patch Tuesday, cybercrime comeuppance, and fun with passwords. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today? Doug, I shouldn't say this, but because I know what's coming in this week in tech history because you gave me a preview, I'm very excited. All right, well, let's get right to it. This week on June 15th, way back in 1949, Jay Forrester, who was a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, wrote down a Don't proposal. Don't say that like for- you're from Boston and you're all smug about it, Doug. Hey, it's a beautiful campus. I've been there many times. <laughs> it is a kind of famous engineering school as well, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> Jay Forrester wrote down a proposal for core memory in his notebook and would later install magnetic core memory on MIT's Whirlwind computer. This invention made computers more reliable and faster. Core memory remained the popular choice for computer storage until the development of semiconductors in the 1970s. A fantastically simple idea once you know how it works. Tiny little ferrite magnetic cores, like you'd get at the centre of a transformer, like super miniature washers, they were magnetised either clockwise or anticlockwise to mean zero or one. It literally was magnetic storage. And it had the funky feature, Douglas, that because ferrite essentially forms a permanent magnet, so you can remagnetize it, but when you turn off the power, it stays magnetized, it was non-volatile. If you had a power failure, you could basically restart the computer and carry on where you left off. Amazing. Outstanding. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Apparently, MIT's original plan was to charge a royalty of two US cents per bit on the idea. <laughs> Can you imagine how expensive that would make, say, a 64 gigabyte iPhone <laughs> memory? <laughs> it would be in the billions of dollars. Unreal. Well, some interesting history, uh, but let's bring it up to the modern day. Not too long ago, Microsoft Patch Tuesday. No zero days, but still plenty of fixes, Paul. Well, no zero days this month if you ignore that edge remote code execution hole uh, that yeah. we talked about mm-hmm. last week. Technically, that's not part of Patch Tuesday, but there were 26 remote code execution bugs in total, 17 elevation of privilege bugs. That's where crooks are already in, but they can't do much yet. So they then use the EOP bug to get superpowers on your network and do much more dastardly things. Four of those remote code execution bugs were dubbed critical by Microsoft, meaning that if you're one of those people who still likes to do your patches in a specific order, those are the ones we suggest you start with. The good news about the four critical patches is that three of them relate to the same Windows component. As far as I can make out, it was a bunch of related bugs found presumably during some kind of code review of that component, which relates to the Windows messaging service if you happen to use that in your network. And we've been all collectively thanked for our patience with the SketchUp debacle, which I didn't know existed until now. Like you, Doug, I have never used this program called SketchUp, which I believe is a third-party 3D graphics program. Who knew that it would be really great to be able to drop SketchUp 3D images into your Word, Excel, PowerPoint documents, 
as you can imagine, brand new file format to parse, to interpret, to process, to render inside Office. They introduced a bug that was fixed as CV-2023-33146. But the hidden story behind the story, if you like, is that on the 1st of June 2023, Microsoft announced that the ability to insert SketchUp graphics has been temporarily disabled in Word, Excel, PowerPoint and Outlook for Windows and Mac. We appreciate your patience as we work to ensure the security and functionality of this feature. I am glad that Microsoft appreciates my patience, but I do perhaps wish that Microsoft itself had been a bit more patient before introducing this feature into Office in the first place and had put it in there after it was secure rather than putting it out to see whether it was secure and finding out, as you say, surprise, surprise, that it wasn't. Great. Uh, Let's stick on the subject of patience. I said that we would keep an eye on this, and I hoped that we wouldn't need to keep an eye on this, but we've got uh, to alliterate a bit, as you did in the headline, more Move It mitigations. These are patches published for further protection, Paul. It's that good old Move It problem again, the SQL injection bug that means that if you're using the Move It transfer program and you haven't patched it, then crooks who can access the web-based front end can trick your server into doing bad things, up to and including embedding a web shell that will let them wander in later and do whatever they want. As you know, there was a CV issued and the Progress software, the makers of MoveIt, put out a patch to deal with the known exploit in the wild. They have another patch out that deals with similar bugs that as far as they know the crooks haven't found yet but if they looked hard enough they might and as weird as that sounds when you find that a particular part of your software has a bug of a particular sort you shouldn't be surprised if when you dig deeper you find that the programmer or the programming team who worked on it at the time that the bug you already know about got introduced committed similar errors around the same time so well done in this case i would say to progress software for trying to deal with this proactively. Progress Software just said all MoveIt customers must apply the new patch released on the 9th of June 2023. Okay, I guess we'll keep an eye on that. Um, Paul, help me out here. I'm in the year 2023 reading on Naked Security in a headline something about Mount Gox. What is happening to me? MTGOX, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, Doug, as it was. Of course. We could, we could trade. Magic the Gathering cards, that domain got sold, which those with long memories will know used to be the most popular and by far the biggest Bitcoin exchange on the planet. It was run by a French expatriate, Marc Carpeles, out of Japan. It was all going apparently swimmingly until it imploded in a puff of cryptocurrency dust in 2014 when they realized that, loosely speaking, All their Bitcoins had disappeared. (laughs) I shouldn't (laughs) Um, laugh. What, 647,000 of them or something? And even back then, they were already worth about $800 a pop. So that was a half a billion US dollars worth of poof. Intriguingly, at the time, a lot of fingers pointed at the Mt. Gox team itself, saying, oh, this must be an inside job. And in fact, on New Year's Day, I think it was, 2015, 
a Japanese newspaper called Yomiuri Shimbun actually published an article saying, we've looked into this and 1% of the losses can be explained by the excuse they've come up with. The rest, we're going on the record saying it was an inside job. Now, that article that they published, which caused a lot of drama because it's quite a dramatic accusation, now gives a 404 error when you visit it today. So I, oh, very I interesting. don't think they stand by it anymore. And indeed, the Department of Justice in the United States has finally, at last, all these years later, actually charged two Russian nationals with basically stealing all the Bitcoin. But it does sound like Mark Karpelis has got at least a partial exoneration courtesy of the US Department of Justice because they very definitely put these two Russian chaps in the frame for this crime all those years ago. It's a fascinating read, so uh, check it out on Naked Security. All you have to do is search for, you guessed it, Mount Gox. Let's uh, stay on the subject of cybercrime as one of the main offenders behind the Gozi banking malware has landed in jail after 10 long years, Paul. Yes, it, it was a little bit like waiting for the bus. <laughs> Too <laughs> astonishing, wow, this happened 10 years ago, but we'll get him in the end stories arrived at once. And this one I thought was important to write up. Again, just to say, this is the Department of Justice. They didn't forget about him. Actually, he was arrested in Colombia. I believe he paid a visit and he was in Bogota Airport. And I guess the border officials thought, oh, that name's on a watch list. And so uh, apparently the Colombian officials thought, let's contact the US diplomatic service and say, hey, we're holding a chap here by the name of, I won't mention his name, it's in the article. You used to be interested in him relating to very serious multi-million dollar malware crimes. Are you still interested by any chance? And what a surprise, Doug. The US was very interested indeed, and he got extradited, faced court, pleaded guilty, and he has now been sentenced. So he'll only get three years in prison, which may seem like a light sentence. He has to hand back more than $3 million. I don't know what happens if he doesn't. But I guess it's a, just a reminder that by running and hiding from malware-related criminality, well, if there are charges against you and the US are looking for you, they don't just go, oh, it's 10 years, we might as well leave it. And this guy's criminality was running what are known as, in the jargon, as bulletproof hosts, Doug. It's basically where you're kind of an ISP, but unlike a regular ISP, you go out of your way to be a moving target to law enforcement, to block lists, and to take down notices from regular ISPs. So you provide services, but you keep them, if you like, shifting around and on the move on the internet so that crooks pay you a fee and they know that the domains that you're hosting for them will just carry on working even if law enforcement are after you. All right, great news again. Paul, you have, as we round out our stories for the day, grappled with a very uh, difficult, nuanced, yet important question about passwords, namely, should we be changing them constantly on a rotation, maybe once a month, or lock in really complex ones to start with and then leave well enough alone? Although it sounds like a sort of old story, and indeed is one that we have visited many times before, the reason I wrote it up is that a reader contacted me to ask about this very thing, saying, I don't want to go into bat for 2FA. I don't want to go into bat for password managers. Those are separate issues. I just want to know how to 
settle, if you like, the turf war between two factions inside my company, where some people are saying we need to do passwords properly, and others are just saying that boat sailed, it's too hard, we'll just force people to change them, and that will be good enough. So I thought it was actually worth writing about it, judging by the number of comments on Naked Security and on social media. Lots of IT teams are still wrestling with this. If you just force people to change their passwords every 30 days or 60 days, does it really matter if they choose one that's eminently crackable if their hash gets stolen, as long as they don't choose password or secret or one of the top 10 cats names in the world? Maybe it's okay if we force them to change it to another not very good password before the crooks would be able to crack it. Maybe that's just good enough. I have three reasons why you can't fix a bad habit by just following another bad habit. The first one out of the gate, changing passwords regularly isn't an alternative to choosing and using strong ones, Paul. No, you might choose to do both. And I'll give you two reasons why I think forcing people to change them regularly has another set of problems. But the simple observation is that changing a bad password regularly doesn't make it a better password. If you want a better password, choose a better password to start with. And you say forcing people to change their passwords routinely may lull them into bad habits. And judging by the comments, this is exactly the problem that lots of IT teams have. If you tell people, hey, you've got to change your password every 30 days and you better pick a good one, all they'll do is they'll pick a good one, they'll spend a week committing it to memory for the rest of their life, and then every month they'll add dash o one dash o two and so on. So if the crooks do crack or compromise one of the passwords and they see a pattern like that, they can pretty much work out what your password is today if they know your password from six months ago. So that's where forcing change when it's not necessary can lead people to take cybersecurity shortcuts that you don't want them to do. And this is an interesting one. We've spoken about this before, but it's something that some people may not have thought of before. Scheduling password changes may delay emergency responses. What do you mean by that? The point is that if you have a formalized, fixed schedule for password changes, so that everyone knows that when the last day of this month comes round, they're going to be forced to change their password anyway. And then they think, you know what? It's the 12th of the month. And, oh, I went to a website. I'm not sure about that. Could have been a phishing site. Well, I'm going to change my password in two weeks anyway. I won't go and change it now. So by changing your passwords regularly, that means that you may end up in the habit where sometimes when it's really, really important, you don't change your password frequently enough. If and when you think there is a good reason to change your password, do it now. I love it. All right, let's hear from one of our readers uh, on the password piece. Naked Security Reader Philip writes, in part, changing your passwords often so as not to get compromised is like thinking that if you run fast enough, you can dodge all the raindrops. Okay, you'll dodge the raindrops falling behind you, but there'll be just as many where you're going and forced to regularly change their passwords, a very large number of people will simply append a number they can increment as required, like you said, Paul. Your friend of mine, Chester, said a few years ago when we were talking about password myths, all they need to do to work work out what the number is at the end is to go to your LinkedIn page. Started at this company in August 2017. 
count the number of months since then, that's the number you need at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And the problem comes that when you try and schedule or algorithmize, is that a word? Probably shouldn't be, but I'll use it anyway. When you try and take the idea of, of randomness and entropy and unpredictability and corral it into some super strict algorithm, like the algorithm that describes how the characters and numbers are laid out on vehicle tags, for example, then you end up with less randomness, not more. And you need to be aware of that. So forcing people to do anything that causes them to fall into a pattern is, as Chester said at the time, simply getting them into the habit of a bad habit. And I love that way of putting it. All right. Thank you very much for sending that in, Philip. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com, comment on any one of our articles, or hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay Stay secure. secure.